0: Well, good morning again. It's my honor and privilege to read God's word uh, today as we continue our study of the gospel according to John. So please open your Bibles, whether in print or gadget form, to John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 through 22. It can also be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,129. John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Our text this morning opens with Jesus ...going up to Jerusalem and into the temple. And because he goes into the temple... ...he's going into the temple during a particular season. There are two particular holy days or holy seasons in Judaism. If the temple is the center of the Jewish uh, culture... ...there are two particular holy days that are higher than others. And one of them... ...is this one, Passover. And Passover takes you back to Exodus 12. The Jews have been in slavery uh, to the Egyptians for about 400 years. And they had cried out in Exodus for their freedom uh, from their oppressors. And God granted that. He heard their prayers and he granted it through bringing these plagues onto... Uh, Egypt until Pharaoh let them go. That is, he needed an incentive that was more painful to keep them uh, than it was to let them go. And, and God won uh, uh, a plague after another, and each time uh, Pharaoh's heart, it says, became hard. Until the tenth plague where uh, God uh, sent his angel of death to take the firstborn of every household in Egypt, except for those who had made a sacrifice, had taken a lamb and killed the lamb, ate the meal, but take, took the blood and put over their doorpost. So as the angel came through, would literally pass over that house onto the next house until he found a house that had not made the sacrifice, had not put the blood on the doorpost. And there he visited upon that family uh, the terror of the loss. Of their firstborn son. It is after that particular plague and the death of Pharaoh's son that Pharaoh lets the people go toward home. The Jews began to commemorate to celebrate that event, that freedom after 400 years, with a festival called Passover. It was a a, a long uh, week of preparation and and uh, and party, You can imagine that uh, for about a month the DOT there in uh, Israel would uh, fill in all the potholes on the roads leading to Jerusalem. The Interior Department would make sure all the national sites were available and clean and ready for all the tourists that would be coming to town. You can imagine the treasury to make sure that there's enough money that could be exchanged so that people could make offering in worship uh, to their God. They would make sure that the agricultural department would get together and talk about all the animals that are going to show up uh, for this week. About uh, 2.25 million animals would be in Jerusalem. The reason we know that is that about 2.25 Million people came to Jerusalem during that week. It was required of you as a follower of Yahweh, the follower of God, to be in Jerusalem on Passover. Obviously, there were exceptions if you lived too far away, but if you had enough money or the distance wasn 't too far, you were required to show up and make a sacrifice, make a sacrifice for your sins in the temple. Well, as this is going on, businesses began to spring up for 2.25 million people that would be in Jerusalem during that time. And you can imagine the things you would need. Not everybody was from an agricultural uh, society. Not everybody was off the farm. And, and so they didn't have their own sheep and bulls and goats and pigeons. They would need to purchase them when they got there. And, and so if you know the temple, it's a, really a series of courts. That is, there's an outer court, and that outer court was for the Gentile believers. It was there that that you would find uh, these animals in cages. Uh, I know they had been inspected by the Humane Society to make sure they weren't ill-treated, but they were there for one purpose, to be bought and killed for man's sin. And so it was going on in the court of the Gentiles. The next court in is the court of the women where a lot of what was there? A lot of money changers. You see, a lot of people were from different regions, and therefore they had different coinage. It's not like today, where if you go down to Georgia, you can still use your dollars. Or if you if you went up to Massachusetts or to California, you can still use your dollars. That's not the way the Roman Empire worked. Depending upon your locale, you had your own money. But when you're giving it to the temple, you had to exchange that money into currency that the temple could use. And so the banks would open branches right there in the temple so that you could go and take your money and make an exchange. Obviously, they made a profit. I mean, nobody expects them to do it for free. So there in the court of the women and spilling over into the court of the Gentiles are these money changers who really were trying to make a service for you who were from out of town to exchange your money. But not only that, there were poor people. And poor people can't afford sheep and goats and bulls. They would buy the pigeons. And so these pigeons were everywhere. And so this is the scene that we have in the opening verses of Jesus coming up to Jerusalem during Passover. And He goes into the temple like every good follower of Yahweh. And He goes in and He begins to see these businesses being transpired inside. And He's not, he's not so upset that these businesses are going on, but what these businesses are causing for the worshipers. You hear what he says, you've turned my house of the Lord, the house of my God. What has it become? And we've tended to, I think, erroneously make this about business, that you can't carry on business in the church. That's not the point that Jesus is making here. I'll make the point in a moment, but just understand that these businesses developed for good reason. That is, people came to the temple because they felt guilty. Nobody would have spent a dime if they didn't feel or believe they were guilty. That is, you're not going to buy a sheep to be slaughtered. You're not going to spend the money if you didn't think it was going to do something for you. In these businesses, one one particular business that was interesting that the, the priest would get... One of their own to go out into where these animals were being bought and they would become the purity police. I know that sounds a little familiar to our ushers, but it's not how they work. These particular ushers would come and check and see, does your garment have any spot on it? Did the hymn have a single hymn? That is, did you bring yourself ready for worship? And then they would look at the animal. Now, you don't have to worry. If you bought an animal from the temple, it would meet the specifications. But if you brought one from their farm, it couldn't have a spot. It couldn't have a blemish. It couldn't be sick. If if you did bring a sick animal to the temple, it would be rejected and it could not be sacrificed. And that became a role and you ended up paying this guy to do this work for the temple. And so Jesus gets pretty upset. He he overturns some tables and he he tells them to get out. And we don't tend to think of Jesus as an angry person. In fact, we almost, the way the movies present him, he's kind of this mild manner. Everybody's losing their head but him. But when you read this passage, he's pretty angry. He's pretty upset enough to overturn tables. And in fact, if you put it in its context, what we looked at last week, we, we saw someone who was into the party and provided joy in the midst of a great wedding. So in the matter of a few verses, Jesus will come, move from this incredible host in a party to a party pooper. Someone who is ruining the gathering. Obviously, they didn't understand. Verse 18, these guys don't know what he's come to do and why he's so upset. Verse 22 says that the disciples don't get it then. They don't get it until after his resurrection. And maybe you don't even get why. I think to understand what Jesus is doing, you have to understand the purpose of the temple and the purpose of the sacrifice and Jesus' relationship to it. But I want you to understand, this is not where this story goes. If you know that this story, the story of the cleansing of the temple, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's at the end of his ministry. When he goes up to Jerusalem after he's done two and two-thirds of his ministry, he's in the last few weeks of his ministry. But John takes that story and moves it here. And you say, what gives him the right to move this story? Why this story here? We already know that John has said, if I told you all the things that Jesus said and did, it would fill all the books of all the libraries in the world. Therefore, I'm not writing a biography. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and by now Mark, and probably Matthew and Luke are already written. So if you want a biography of Jesus' life, you can go read those. In verse 31 of chapter 20 tells you why he's writing this letter. In order that you might believe. I write these things, these stories, in order that you might believe. And therefore, he's making an argument. He's not given a biography, a necessarily history, and generally follows the flow of history. But every now and then, you're going to get a story that he puts with another story so that the stories together can communicate. And this is what, I'll give you the answer, and then I'll prove it, and then we'll close it. Here's the point that I think John wants you to understand. You cannot have lasting joy until you deal with your guilt. Until you face your guilt. Until your guilt is finally, permanently removed. You can't have real joy. That's why these two stories are going to come together. We saw last week the argument for joy. The reason Jesus comes is to give us real, lasting joy. He's the joy giver. And now he's going to say how that works is that Jesus has to finally, permanently, completely deal with your guilt, which is the purpose of the temple. The temple's whole purpose was to give you a picture of what it would be like to be forgiven. Of what it would be like for your guilt to be removed. Temporarily. It's a pointer. And the reason Jesus is so upset when he comes into the temple. Where he overturns tables. Where love overturns tables. Is because that picture is being obscured from the people. That all those money changers, all that trading, all that that's going on. Is just a shadow over the pointer so you can't see That he, Jesus, was supposed to come to the temple and stand up, all this you've been looking at, I am the fulfillment. Follow me. Do you know what happens when he makes that statement? He's going to make it in uh, verse 17. Do you know what happens? Verse 17 through 19. They want to kill him. Because they missed the point of the temple because it had been obscured the whole point of all those sacrifices was to point to Jesus finally, completely, permanently dealing with our guilt so that we could have joy. And they've missed it. I gave you a quote in the beginning of Carl Menninger, who was a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book, Whatever Became of of Sin, and I know that doesn't sound very popular in today's world, But here's the argument he's making. I want to see a revival of guilt and sin. Not because I want you to be depressed. Not because I want you to be discouraged. But because if we will realize that we feel guilty, if we realize that we sin, then there's hope of an answer. As long as we suppress that, as long as we deny that, as long as we appease it, we will never deal with it. And we'll never see that Jesus has come to deal with it. And therefore we will never deal with Jesus His point is that you don't get more depression, you get less because there's hope. And that's why Jesus is so outraged when he gets to his father's house and sees that the pointer is not pointing to him, but to them. And so from this argument, not the argument of joy, now I want to make the argument of guilt. These Jews, the way that they dealt with guilt was to make a sacrifice. And you say, where did they? is that created by them? No, God told them to do this. Six months after Passover is the highest and most holy day in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. One day out of the whole calendar year, their sins would be dealt with. That is, early in the morning, the high priest who had been elected, in this case, it would be Annas. Nobody would go near this guy. Because if you're sick and you got him sick, then no sacrifice could be made. So everybody stayed away from him. He took a bath. Now, understand in this culture, they didn't take a lot of baths. But this poor guy is going to take three baths on that day. He takes a bath, and when he's done taking a bath, somebody has made him a garment with a single hem that he would put on without spot, without blemish, so that he could go up into the temple, into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, and take a bull and slaughter it. And it would be incredibly bloody. It would have gotten all over his clothes, all over his body. But he made that sacrifice for his own sins he would put that in a receptacle that will be used later covered in blood he would go home and he'd take a second bath and he would get clean and he put on not the bloody clothes but another set of brand new clothes and he would take that new set of clothes and clean blood and go back to the temple and he'd go into the very same place and slaughter another bull But this time, not for his sins, but for all the priests who would be aiding him that day in the sacrifice for the people. And that would be another bloody one. He'd cover his clothes and cover his body. And he'd go home again. And he would take a third bath. And he'd get clean again. And he'd put on a third set of clothes. And he would go back to the temple. And in this time, not a bull, but he would have two goats. One goat, he would stand and say, the sins of my people. And he would begin to name them. Not necessarily attached to a person, but he would say, this is what's going on in our midst, corporately and individually. And put both of his hands on that goat. And then they would, that goat would be led out of the camp, led out of the city, into the wilderness, to show how sin creates a separation between us and God. But it also showed that forgiveness is going to be as far as the east is from the west. And then he's going to take the other goat. And he's going to slaughter that goat. And he's going to take the blood from the two bulls and the the goat. And he's going to take that along with a rope around his waist into the Holy of Holies. He's covered in blood. Blood from that goat. And he's going to go into the Holy of Holies that only a high priest can go in once a year. For this sole purpose. To go up to the Ark of the Covenant. Or at least it's representative. And on it was a, was a seat. It was called the mercy seat of God. Where God would receive the sacrifices of His people. In order that He might forgive. And that was done every year. Every year. And do you think today that they thought then that it did anything for them? No. Whenever I think of these horrendous sacrifices, I I think of Lady Macbeth. I know those of you who don't like English literature, just bear with me. If you know the story of Lady Macbeth, she, she ends up participating in a murder. And, it, and the guilt just overwhelms her. To where she, she looks at the hands and, and she can never seem to clean them enough. Her, and and it's, it's symbolic for the guilt that she felt over her participation in this murder. And so she cries out, Oh, spot, out, spot! Is there no potion that I can use to make these hands clean? And then Macbeth sees his wife struggling over and over again with this guilt that nothing seems to swage her pain. He calls in a doctor, and he says to the doctor, "O oh, canst thou not pluck from the, mem- the the memory a rooted sorrow? You hear that? Can you not get that sorrow out of her mind?" With some sweet oblivious antidote. Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs down her heart. Whether Whether you're with Shakespeare or you're with the Jews, they're both saying the same thing. Humans are now defined by our guilt. It's not the way it always was. We weren't originally designed to be defined by guilt because we knew no guilt. We have done no sin. But ever since the fall, man has been defined. Man has his identity wrapped up with all the things that he has done wrong. You ever, you ever get that way? Maybe that's happening to you right now in the quietness of this place. Your mind immediately goes to where you have offended. Where you have harmed. Or maybe it's where someone has harmed you. And it just seems like a weight around your your ankles. It seems, it seems like it's two big pieces of luggage that you carry with with handcuffs that you can never be free from you can identify with macbeth you can identify with these jews year after year after year after year slaughtering all of these millions of animals for the sole purpose to relieve their guilt knowing full well it does not that's what the writer of hebrews said in chapter ten, he says, "For since the law has been a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can, never can, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." Do you hear what he's saying? We do these things, knowing full well they cannot make us perfect. Otherwise, we would not have to see; we would not have ceased to be offering, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed. Would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices there are is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you say, "Oh, we're so much better today. We're so advanced. We don't. We, that's so primitive to sacrifice animals. Really? How how are you doing?" Denying the guilt of your own conscience. Or to diminish it, that it's not that big a deal. As one spouse leaves another spouse for someone else, as if that's okay. God just wants me happy. To diminish that sin like it's no big deal. Why family members are crushed in the wake of that sin. How about the appeasing of our sin to think that somehow if I, can, if I can just make up for it, if I can do some good deeds to, to just offset on these cosmic heavenly scales, my bad. Are we really more sophisticated? Are we really that far along and better? Have we solved the problem of guilt on our own? The truth is, This is what we all have in common. We are all guilty. And we all know it. Unless we look to the solution, which is what the temple was supposed to do. What all the sacrifices were to show. A love that is willing to forgive. Now you get a little sense of why he's so passionate. Why he's so upset. In verse 17, the temple is the place where people were supposed to deal with their guilt. And instead, it's been obscured by the the selling and the buying. The picture has become unclear to us. Have we done that at EP? Have we obscured Jesus so that people can't see Him? Or they only get glimpses of Him from a distance? Have we put up so many barriers that if someone came into the room that is trying to, to get a final solution for their guilt, they don't find it here? I think that's a great question to ask corporately, but it's also important to ask that question individually. When these children come up here for baptism, are we obscuring the gospel that that kid never hears Jesus? At least the Jesus that is being represented in the scriptures. Oh, we've got Jesus. We've got Jesus in a genie bottle who grants us three wishes. We've got a Jesus that's a good luck charm that if we'll hang him around our necks, that he'll ward off evil. We've got a bobblehead, Jesus. You know how we create bobbleheads? There are people that are celebrities. Jesus has become a celebrity to us and therefore he, he deserves his own bobblehead. What we're really doing is we're, we're packaging Jesus in such a way that, that we can consume him when we want him. Never dealing with our guilt. And Jesus tells us in this passage, in two different ways, how he has come to heal our guilt. To bring that one potion, that, that one perfume that truly gets the spot out. I wish Lady Macbeth or Shakespeare could have met Jesus. He says in verse 17, His disciples remember not then, but later, Zeal for your house will consume me. You hear what he's saying? Obviously, the, the religious leaders didn't get it. Because they started talking about, it took 46 years to build this temple. He's talking about his own body, his own death. He's saying, I'm both goats. I, I'm the, on the day of atonement. I'm the one who's ultimately got to be banished. How do you know that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is what he says from the cross. How do you, how do you know he's the, the blood sacrifice that goes into the mercy seat? Because on the cross, at his death, he says it is finished and then it says he breathed his last. He's the one final sacrifice. But he says, that's not the only one I'm going to give you because I'm going to put, that would put you in the same spot as Hebrews 10, having to repeat it over and over again. I'm going to raise him from the dead so you, you'll know, you'll know that it was accepted by me. How do you know? Do you see it? So when the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us? He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, Come on, it took 46 years. How are you going to destroy this temple? In fact, it becomes the one of the two charges the Jews have against Jesus the destruction of the temple and these king of the Jews he's not talking about destroying that building. That building's nothing but a pointer. That's making something out of a stop sign. When was the last time you went out and venerated this new stop sign that's out here on Ridgely? I'm thankful because every day I go by there, I think somebody's going to hit me. They're not going to remember there's a stop sign there. We need to venerate that. No, that's exactly what they were doing with the temple. They were worshiping that temple rather than what the temple pointed to, which is Jesus. And it is to be received by faith. Because if they will receive what Jesus did on the cross, that this great exchange, that he who knew no sin becomes sin. He changes identity with us. He exchanges that place that we belong for the place where he belongs. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And has to be received by faith because if we have that faith, we get the joy. That's why these stories are brought together. They're connected that once guilt has finally, finally been dealt with, we can have joy. If we really knew what forgiveness felt like, if we really knew that we were loved and accepted, we would have joy. What what does forgiveness feel like, Bruce? Linda is a Trouble girl. She gave her parents a lot of trouble. She was hanging out with the wrong crowd and she was into boys and into drugs. She didn't like the interference of her parents and the rules that they laid down, and so eventually she had enough and left. She didn't leave a note, she didn't tell where she was, and so she became the heartache of her parents because they didn't know was she alive, and if she's alive, what's her condition? Listen, if you're young, don't you ever do that to your parents. Because the blank is worse than the filling in the blank. Where our hearts and our minds go without knowing is horrible. Three years later, she shows back up, strung out on drugs and and says, help me. What do good parents do? Yes, I'll help you. Even after not knowing you were alive or dead... Even after you've rejected us as your parents, we will not reject you as our child. They put her in a rehab. And at the very end of that rehab, they call the family and friends and people who were in the rehab together so she could tell her story. And she begins to recount her story. And as she's recounting the story, she's just looking at her dad. And the tears are coming down because she's saying, Dad... As you know, I was into drugs before, but I really got addicted to drugs after I left your home. And the only way that I could support that habit was I became a prostitute. Can you imagine telling your dad that story? And so she's begun to sob now to where she can't go on. So her father gets up out of his little metal chair. And he comes over and puts his arms around her and says, No, 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 Linda. You're not a prostitute. You are and always will be my little girl. And it's her just as they're celebrating, eating their little cookies and, and lemonade. She says, I had forgotten what it was like to be in the arms of my father. That's forgiveness. That's what it feels like to know that guilt no longer weighs you down. That your bags have finally been open and all of the crud has been spilt out. Because the Father in heaven wraps his arms around you and says to you, you are mine. You always will be mine. And if that's true, do you see yourself as loved, accepted, and his? And if you do, here's a test. You see everyone else that same way. One way to know that you see yourself forgiven is that you forgive. This is why Jesus said, If you refuse to forgive, you will not be forgiven. He's really implying the reverse. If you know His forgiveness, His love... His willingness to come and turn the tables of your life upside down in order to empty the bags of your guilt once and for all, to know that you're His, then how in the world could you ever withhold that from someone else? Of course we can. And of course we do. And what's the solution? Return by faith to see what He has done for us. Religious leaders don't get it. Because they... Jesus is always tweaking what they're dependent on. Have you been dependent on something else to assuage your guilt? Are you want running to your Father who will accept you? It's not a question of when. It is a question of whether you'll go. If you're new to faith, this is what we mean by Jesus loving us so much that he died for us. And therefore, you're welcome to come and see if it's true. I believe Christianity is reasonable. It's not blind faith. Come and test it out for yourself. See if it fits the reality of how you've dealt with guilt, but your guilt has never gone away. Have you given Jesus the opportunity to take your guilt? If you have, you might need to return because you don't see others as forgiven. Or you won't forgive. If you haven't ever come, you can come. It takes the same faith. Same faith. It's not one faith and then another. Same faith. I invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this glorious news. That joy is found in your arms when we have come before you and said we have messed up our lives. In fact, we have messed up other people's lives by the things we've said and the things we have done. But we recognize what Jesus has done for us once and for all. The just for the unjust. So I pray, Father, that we become the people of the joy because our joy is found in Jesus. Help us not to put up walls that obscure who Jesus is and what He has done. Help us to tear them down because we know that our only hope is Jesus and it is the only hope of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.